Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. I'm Chad Hayfley. I do work related to user experience and web design in academic libraries. And welcome back to part two of our series on self-efficacy. Chad, can you recap where we left our intrepid heroes? Well, we talked a lot about Dark Souls, a very, very difficult series, which seemed to fly in the face of everything that the research and uh, critical articles had said about self-efficacy and how you could build yourself up to feel confident. Dark Souls does everything the exact opposite and seems designed to make you feel unconfident. Yeah, very good. Exactly right. Yeah, so we talked about how you can make someone feel more confident in their abilities if you, you know, give them examples of success, if you show them other people who have been successful, if you tell them they're going to be successful, although that's not as effective, and if you maybe not scare them. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So since we're talking about the the flip side of, of being confident... Uh, we gave stories last time about how our confidence enabled us to do things we probably didn't think we would have been able to do otherwise. Let's talk about a time that we've been overconfident. So my example comes from way back when I tried out for the high school soccer team. So before then, I just played in little community soccer leagues where we would go to practice like twice a week for like an hour. We'd just have fun and kick the ball around. And then we'd go to a game on Sundays and the moms would cut oranges and we'd go out for ice cream afterward. And it was just a fun time. And I thought the high school soccer team would be a similarly fun time. I heard that it might be a little hard. So, you know, I, I jogged like a mile or two, you know. Oh, that's brave of you. A couple times through the summer before, and I thought I'd be in good shape. Uh, Nope, that was not correct. (laughs) (laughs) My body was not prepared for running constantly for three hours, taking a break for lunch to stuff my face full of carbs, and going back out for another three hours at all. And there probably wasn't even any ice cream at the end. There was zero ice cream, Chad. Zero ice cream on the high school soccer That's a shame. Yeah, and I was uh, I was very bad compared to everyone else. <laughs> uh, not just in the being able to run and breathe department, but also as far as kicking the ball and making it go in a certain direction. <laughs> um, yeah, and I I rode that good old pine bench for 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 that entire year, pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. That knocked some sense into me, and I, I practiced and got better in subsequent years. But uh, that first year was pretty rough. How about you, Chad? I would just say my whole first semester of college <laughs> pretty much okay. was a per, perhaps wonderful case study in overconfidence related academically. To, related to Tekken. Oh, academically. Okay. <laughs> yes, Tekken also, <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, so I was I was a fairly good student in high school, took advanced courses and did fairly well in them uh, in retrospect without having to put forward a, a ton of effort. Um, and then I got to college and all of a sudden effort was required. And I unfortunately seem to be operating on some sort of lag timer related to that and didn't pick up on the fact that effort was required for a while and thought I was confident that I could turn everything around at the end. And it took a lot more work than I thought it would. I think that's a very common experience. Yeah. And then also, I think I previously mentioned a Smash Brothers tournament I attempted to participate in once. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like your soccer story, I think. Like, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd played against friends, and I thought I was pretty good. Maybe not as good as some. You know, I didn't think I was going to win or anything. But I thought I'd uh, have a good time, and instead it lasted about 20 seconds. 
You were smashed. I was smashed. Yes. <laughs> Repeatedly. Yeah. Well, we, we've we've all been there in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, this comes up just like examples of the power of believing in yourself. Uh, the dangers of overconfidence is also a popular theme in literature and uh, in pop culture. All the way back to Shakespeare, right? So if you think about Julius Caesar, you had Brutus and Cassius thinking they could make a better government if they assassinate Julius Caesar. And that ends up not going well for either of them. In English class, we have a special term for that called hubris, where you're way too proud of your own abilities for your, your own good. That was my default answer in English papers for a while. <laughs> Mine was the transience of life. Yes, yeah, also a good one. <laughs> that got me an A on an essay question, no joke, once, because I had no <laughs> idea what to put. <laughs> um, more recently, uh, so in the movie Doctor Strange, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, he is a, a hotshot doctor until something bad happens to him because he's way too confident in what he can do. And that leads him to travel across the world to meet with uh, magical people on the other side of the world. And then, you know, if you go even further back than Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> Way back into the, the deep darkness of history. We're talking like pre-1960s here. To, to the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you have your seven deadly sins, right? Uh, which I guess... That term came after the Bible. But anyway, pride is usually <laughs> listed as the, the foremost among them. And according to our good friend C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he said that it was through pride that the devil became the devil. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Anti-God. That's it's a little bit rough. That's a harsh term. Yeah, It's a little bit harsh for our good friend uh, Albert Bandura to have that term applied to, to his mm -hmm. theories. Um so let's talk about some of the controversy around self-efficacy, shall we, Chad? Mm-hmm, please. All right, so I would speculate that, you know, theories on self-efficacy have led to the practice of giving out participation awards. Uh, this is especially prevalent in sports. Um, so you play a sport and you get a trophy because you played it, not because you won. For the participation award. Right, so I got these when I played soccer before I got the crap kicked out of me in high school uh soccer practice <laughs> have you ever gotten a participation award for something similar i must have i don't know i, didn't, I wasn't a big sports person mm. at all as as might have figured out by now um but yeah i'm pretty sure i got oh oh yes uh pinewood derby and cub scouts as a child oh, you... pinewood derby that was a thing for other people yes yes it was it was somehow where you made a little wooden car out of a block of wood and put wheels on it and raced it down a, a slope and um oh yeah i got trophies that i did not earn yeah i think you meant to say it's where your dad makes a car for you and races I, yes it yep, <laughs> and then re you get revised <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, I did that in uh something similar so last year on Instagram, I don't I don't follow sports terribly much, but uh, Pittsburgh Steeler James Harrison posted a photo saying that he was returning his son's participation trophies. Uh, he wrote, I'm not about to raise two boys to be men by making them believe that they are entitled to something just because they tried their best. Because sometimes your best is not enough and that should drive you to want to do better. Not cry and whine until somebody gives you something to shut you up and keep you happy. Ouch. Ouch. How old are his sons? Do you know? 
Um, I think younger than 10 at that point. Okay. So. There's, there's a very similar quote from uh, Sean Connery in the classic 90s movie, The Rock. It's, <laughs> okay. I probably can't repeat, repeat due to profanity, but uh, he's berating Nicolas Cage's character for whining about how he tried his best. Uh-huh. And that, that's huh. not good enough. Yep. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> So the article that I referenced in our last episode from Aaron Schmidt in 2010 also talks about some conflicting research on self-efficacy. So having high self-efficacy can make you think you're closer to achieving your goals than you actually are, leading you to not put in as much effort as you should. Does that sound familiar, Uh, Chad? uh, Perhaps a little Uh, bit, yeah. uh, uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. This is especially the case if there is some ambiguity in how well you're doing. So if you don't have a very strong indication of whether or not you're being successful, you'll be more likely to think, oh, I'm good at this. It must be fine. I got a trophy. Yeah, I got a trophy. I'm amazing at soccer. I (laughs) I ran a mile over the summer. I mean, I'm fine. So his article talks about an experiment where they had undergraduates rate themselves on how good they were at making anagrams, which is basically showing someone a word and rearranging those letters to make a different word. So, like, if you take the word loops, you can make an anagram of pools. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they would do is sometimes the proctors of the experiment would tell them how many possible solutions there were for this one word, and sometimes they would be less specific. And when the exact number of solutions was given, the more confident students were more likely to find them all. Hmm. But when the exact number was not given, they were more likely to quit early. So because it provided a benchmark to work against? Well, because, so let's say someone would would tell them, well, there's more than one solution here. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's actually five. But a confident student might find two or three and think, you know, I'm really good at anagrams, so I probably found them all. So, Uh, So next right gotcha yeah so the problem here and this is you know my my own speculation and belief is that if you're overconfident you can suddenly crash into a task that is too hard for you and then kind of find yourself in a downward spiral of you're doing poorly so you think you're awful so you do more poorly so you think you're awful and then you can't really recover from that next thing you know you're deep dark in depression Right. <laughs> um, so probably with your Smash Brothers experience, you did not, you were, you were not in a hurry to go back to a Smash Brothers tournament. No, that was about six years ago at this point, and I have not been to another one since then. <laughs> yeah, and likewise, I, I very nearly yeah quit the soccer team the the first or second week. Um, I'm happy I... to report I did not drop out of college though. Well... <laughs> Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> So, coming to video games, I experienced something similar actually this past week, (laughs) playing the spiritual sequel to the Dark Souls series called Bloodborne, which I hadn't played yet because it was only released on PlayStation 4, which was Mm. extremely annoying for me. (laughs) But eventually there were enough titles coming out for the PlayStation 4 that I decided that it was worth my money to to buy one. So, I got it. Yeah, and I got Bloodborne. So this game is uh, Victorian rather than the medieval, like Dark Souls is. 
So it's kind of like Call of Cthulhu meets Castlevania. <laughs> you are really slowly selling me on this, this series. <laughs> so Castlevania is an old video game about being a vampire hunter and you have a whip and you fight yeah, vampires, obviously, and werewolves and, and bats and things. And then Call of Cthulhu, uh, famous. If you've ever seen a monster with a, a octopus for a head and tentacles coming out of its mouth, that's what Cthulhu is. Just think of, you know, unknowable beings from eldritch planes in outer space. And lots of madness. And lots of madness. Everyone goes crazy. So in this game, you play a hunter on a night when everyone in the town is out hunting people who have been cursed to change into monsters. And the twist is that the hunters are turning into monsters themselves, because in order to fight monsters, you need to have an infusion of monster blood. Which, I think that's what's happening. It's always kind of hard to understand in Dark Souls games. (laughs) (laughs) So, people are hunting you, you're hunting other people, other people are turning into werewolves slowly. I think you yourself are turning into a werewolf slowly. Again, not solid on all of that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you also die right away in this game. Last episode I talked about how you wake up from your blood transfusion, immediately fight a werewolf with your bare hands, and lose. So, but you know, I went into the game expecting that, right? I'd been through four of these experiences before. They all work the same way. I'm like, okay, gonna start, gonna die, gotcha, let's get on with uh, with the game. There are a few key differences uh, that are apparent right away. So, I feel like the game designer looked at Dark Souls and saw the people, you know, moving cautiously with their shields up all the time, getting hit a little bit, backing up with their shield, drinking from their Estus flask to refill their health, and going back in cautiously, and decided, that is boring, I want people to move faster, and have this be a more exciting experience. So they took away the shield. <laughs> oh, oh man, you, that you have no traumatic. shield. Yeah. yeah, instead you get a gun. So, if you're fighting against another player, A, they can't hold their shield up to protect themselves and B, you can shoot them if they run away. (laughs) Significant developments. Right. You can dodge a lot uh, more quickly than you could in previous games. Um, There are fewer weapons, but they're, they're really cool. They transform into other things. So at the beginning of the game, you can choose from like uh, an ax that changes into a saw type thing uh, something else, and then a cane that transforms into a whip. And uh, because I know the good things in life, I pick the cane that transforms into a whip, obviously. <laughs> that's the, Yeah, why would you go with any other option? So, yeah, generally the combat is just much faster paced and a lot more reflex-based than, you know, methodical and, and planning and strategizing. So I felt like I was getting used to that. Um, I went and I fought the first boss, which is a large werewolf-like creature called the Cleric Beast. Um, and it had these these large sweeping attacks, and it was hard to dodge them, and I couldn't bring my shield up like I could in the other game, so I was getting hit all the time. I couldn't figure out the trick to the boss. Like I found out you could shoot him in the face to take off a little bit of life, but that only made him matter and do more damage, so it seemed kind of a dumb strategy. Uh, I died a couple times and I knew there had to be a shortcut somewhere, like in Dark Souls, so I went and I I found it, and I found, you know, my 30 second path toward the boss, 
But I just, even though I found that shortcut and even though I understood the game was supposed to be about dodging and quick hits, um, I just couldn't figure out the, the trick to beating him. You know, I felt like my attacks took off like 1% of his health each time and ended up just throwing firebombs at him, which are consumable items, and I never use consumable items in video games. Yeah, I'll finish the game with 300 of them. The really frustrating thing is that in this game, your healing items, which are, are blood vials that you inject into your leg, <laughs> these don't these don't replenish when you get to the bonfire equivalent. Mm. You have to buy more of them. So when you're having a learning experience with the boss, you don't want to waste your healing items because those don't come back. All right, that's a precious resource. Yeah. So I'd run all the way to the boss and just see how much I could learn, you know, in one health bar span instead of like ten, which I would get you know, earlier. Mm -hmm. Anyway, beat him, got to another boss who was also a large werewolf. My attacks, again, hardly did anything. Um, So it was like the first boss times five. And uh, that night I had a moment similar to when I played the first Dark Souls, where I'm like, you know what, these these blood vials, they're a dumb mechanic. I'm hardly doing any damage. Why doesn't my health items come back? I can't tell where this person's hitting. Their swipes are so large. This is the fourth werewolf boss I fought in a row. There's no artistic direction in this game. It's dumb. I quit. <laughs> Everything is stupid. Why did I buy a PS4? Can I return it? <laughs> I, th- I think I literally told Hannah, my wife, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is, that's an extreme rage quit when you quit yeah. the whole console. Yeah, well, because, because I thought I was supposed to be good at this game, right? Like mm-hmm. I'd beaten four Dark Souls games. You were before. mighty. What's that? You were mighty. I was mighty. And then I was getting stuck on this game and I couldn't figure out why. Anyway, again, because, you know, my pride, I went, <laughs> which is the, the foremost of the seven deadly sins, as we were. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I went back to it and I found another area that had uh, some basically power-ups to make my weapon more powerful. Dark Souls has this thing where you can miss entire huge areas if you just don't look around this one particular hidden corner. And there was one corner I missed, so I went there. And I had to relearn a few things. So in Dark Souls, I talked about how you're just supposed to upgrade your weapons, and that's the only way how you can really increase damage for a large part of the game. In Bloodborne, raising your stats actually does make a difference, I found out after experimenting. And then I found out that you can easily harvest those blood vials that restore your life. There's like a loop you can run in the very first level where the enemies always drop them. And you can replenish them like in a couple minutes. Without having to spend resources on them. Right. And I found the process can actually be uh, kind of relaxing. So like you're banging your head off of this impossible boss for a long time. And then the game forces you to just go and do this easy thing where you can see how much progress you've made stat-wise because now you can kill these enemies in one or two hits where they took you five or six hits before. So you get a chance to kind of decompress, get more confidence, and your brain can kind of, you know, process in the background what you should be doing to to beat the boss. At least that's what I think the mechanic is for. Hey, if it works for you. Yeah. But um, now I think I'm on the final boss. You think you are. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm enjoying it a lot more. The the aesthetic of the game, just the like the the Victorian, you know, Cthulhu uh, ambiance, is just really exquisite. 
you, you play through like the span of a night. So you start out and the sun is setting and then you get to the middle third of the game and it's just a full moon. And then the final third of the game, the, the dawn is, is starting. And uh, yeah, I'm really liking it, maybe even more than, than Dark Souls. But I wonder if the game could have done something more to like shock me out of my complacency. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the the uh, the beginning experience there was similar to all of the other Dark Souls games. So maybe it could have done something different for those players like like me who were coming at it with that that background. Anyway, that brings us to the possible solution for our question of what is up with self-efficacy and why is it good in some cases and not in others? <laughs> That'll be our episode title. What is up with self-efficacy? <laughs> so there was an article published by Jeffrey Vancouver in 2008, again in the Journal of Applied Psychology. And I'm glad I found this one because the rest of his articles were behind paywalls. <laughs> oh, he rolled the dice. Um, so people had been speculating that self-efficacy, like believing in yourself versus performance is maybe like a slope, like the more you believe, the better you are, or maybe it's like a curve where, you know, you start out believing in yourself and doing really good. And then maybe you don't do so well and then get better. But in his model, he pictures a flat line and then a vertical line and then a downward slope. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) so basically his theory was that your self-efficacy needs to be high enough to set the goal for doing something, but then low enough to assign a realistic amount of resources to accomplish that task. Okay. So you got to hit the sweet spot in the middle. Right. So he, he broke down accomplishing something into a goal setting stage and a resource allocation stage. So if your self-efficacy is too low during the goal-setting stage, you'll you'll get that flat line in his mm-hmm. graph because you'll never even try. And then if it's at that sweet spot, it'll be you know a vertical line that goes straight up. But then if it's too high, you'll be at the farther end, the, the tail of that declining slope because you think you're so good at the task that you don't need to prepare. I could see some logic to that. Yeah, it was pretty cool um, as far as studies in the Journal of Applied Psychology. <laughs> Go. <laughs> so one way to kind of regulate someone's feelings of self-efficacy was talked about in an article by Jay Hardy the Third in 2014 in a journal called the Personality and Individual Differences. He suggests using something called induced failure which is building failure experiences into training to, quote, develop productive levels of self-doubt, additional preparatory effort, and stronger competitive performance. That sounds an awful lot like Dark Souls. <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, we can yeah circle back to, to Dark Souls uh, in a bit, because that's kind of the, <laughs> the, 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 the quintessential um, embodiment of that. But... I feel like you find this throughout video games, actually. So, for example, in the the Legend of Zelda games, which you're familiar with, I'm sure. Of course, of course. Don't insult me. Oh, well, sorry. (laughs) Uh, You play Link, a boy in a fantasy world, um, trying to stop an evil wizard named Ganon, who has usually kidnapped Princess Zelda for some reason. And you progress by going into dungeons, collecting tools, and beating the bosses of those dungeons. So a typical dungeon experience, especially 
um, and the later games is you find a monster that you can't easily beat with your current tools. That monster's hard for you. Then you find a tool to beat that monster, and then you practice using it on that monster. Then you get to the dungeon boss, and you beat the boss with that tool you learned how to use. So, in Link to the Past for Super Nintendo, for example, you get to one dungeon where you're fighting these armadillo monsters with helmets, and your sword can't get through the helmet, so you have to get behind them in this very painstaking way. Well, then you find a hammer that you can use to break the helmets, and now they're easy. And then the last boss is a huge armadillo with a giant helmet, and in that case, you cannot get behind him. Your only choice is to use the hammer to break his helmet. Those poor armadillos. Poor armadillos. I think they're armadillos. I don't know how else to describe them. I'll allow it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Ocarina of Time for N64. Uh, one dungeon there, you find a haunted castle in the forest, and there are ghosts that fly away, and they're very difficult, if not impossible, to hit with your sword. I forget. Uh, in that castle, you find a bow, and then you can use the bow to kill the ghosts. And then the boss of that dungeon is a phantom of Ganon riding a flying horse, teleporting around, and he's nearly impossible to beat without using the bow. Mm-hmm. So so imagine if these dungeons didn't have that induced failure experience with those smaller monsters at the beginning that encouraged you to learn how to use the hammer or the bow. Like imagine if, you know, there were no ghosts in that dungeon, you just got you just got the bow and arrow, and then you went to fight Ganon without you know, knowing how hard it is to hit someone that's flying around with your sword, you might be tempted to waste a lot of time trying to do something that had been successful for you previously. Yeah, it'd be a lot harder to understand the purpose of what you've just been given. Right, exactly. And actually, now that I think about it, each dungeon's kind of like its own tiny self-contained problem-centered learning experience, (laughs) (laughs) right? Where you're presented with a problem and then you're given a solution, and then you practice it, and then you practice it in a really hard situation. So, very, very well designed. Another example that you find is in uh, Mega Man X for Super Nintendo. This is the Mega Man game I've played most by far. Yeah, yeah, a a masterpiece, I would say, of of its time. It's a side-scrolling shooter. Uh, You play a robot trying to stop bad robots by defeating them and using their powers, basically. So you absorb uh, powers to shoot boomerangs or stop time or something. And so in the tutorial level of Mega Man X, you learn to run and jump and shoot and do all your basic stuff. But then at the end, you fight this unbeatable boss guy driving a suit of mechanical armor. Um, I think we've talked about how frustrating unbeatable bosses can be (laughs) in the past. Fortunately, you don't have any valuable items to waste on on this fight. But anyway, the guy grabs you with his huge purple mechanical arm. He's about to crush you. You think your life is over. But then you're saved by a, a good robot called Zero. The red ironically. one. What's that? He's the red one as opposed to Mega Man, the blue one. Yes, exactly. Also, he has a long yellow hair, I think. Yep. Or it's a scarf. I forget. Yeah, it's indeterminate. <laughs> uh, but anyway, from off screen, he, he shoots a laser blast and that blows off the arm that's grabbing you. Then he dashes in, which is an ability you don't have. You don't know how to dash yet. And then he basically saves your life. The bad guy runs away. And then there's this there's this very succinct conversation you have with him. And if you can get past the fact that it's at, like, a first-grade reading level in a video game, <laughs> um, there's a lot to learn here from a training perspective, right? Okay, so 
So Mega Man X tells Zero, I guess I'm not powerful enough to defeat him. And Zero no. tells him, yeah. <laughs> Zero tells him, X, you shouldn't expect to defeat him. Remember, you have not reached full power yet. If you use all the abilities you were designed with, you should become stronger. You may even become as powerful as I am. I'll scout ahead and collect as much information on the bad guy's fortress as I can. I'll meet up with you when you get there. X, I know you can do it. And then he teleports away, of course. So if we if we do an, an analysis of this conversation, right? <laughs> so Mega Man X has this induced failure with the end level boss, right? You're having a failure experience. There's a problem you can't solve. You realize that you're not as great or as powerful at the game as you thought you were. Yeah, after you had just sliced and diced your way through all the minions. Right, exactly. So then you are saved from death by, you know, uh, what we would call in an e-learning course as an avatar, as a representation representation of a person. Um, And that creates feelings of gratitude and respect toward that person. Um, So you're more likely to want to listen to what they have to say. Also, that shows you that other people that you can trust have solved this problem. So you get that, you know, kind of vicarious... Uh, encouragement that we talked about through uh, during our last episode where you see someone else solve a problem. Um, that avatar demonstrates an ability that you uh, that you don't have. So there's a reason they could solve that problem. They didn't just get lucky. You know, they, they practiced at it or they had the right tools. Then he tells you that you can get these abilities. If you work hard, then you too can solve this problem. <laughs> and then he says he'll be there to help you. You know, you don't have to struggle all by yourself. I'll scout ahead and then we can meet up after you practice a bit. Then he says, I know you can do it. All of this contained in a tiny conversation that I always skipped through as fast as possible. Exactly. All of this in less than a minute. Um, this game just elegantly communicates, you know, everything that they get at the beginning of any training session could get across, right? That this thing is going to be tough, but I can do it. Other people can do it. I'm going to show you how you can do it too, right? Stand up and cheer. Stand up and cheer. Amazing. So what are our our takeaways from this? I would say that, especially when designing training for higher level learners, like people who already have a lot of experience in the subject matter you're discussing, make sure that the problem you present at the beginning of the training is significant enough to knock them out of their feeling that they don't need to work hard to solve it, right? Because the, the biggest danger that a competent person has is being... Uh, neglectful of how many resources they need to invest in getting better at something. Mm-hmm. So for technical training, maybe give them a time limit to fix a broken system, right? That is related to what you're going to to teach them. Um, if they can actually fix it, then great. They don't have to take the training. <laughs> <laughs> and you can get the afternoon off. Exactly. Everyone, everyone wins. But otherwise, that's uh, in Albert Bandura's words, a performance accomplishment that they'll fail at. So that'll that'll lower their self-efficacy probably to a reasonable level for the the training. But don't make them feel too bad, of course. Mm-hmm. Give them an inspiring speech from Mega Man X. <laughs> I'm gonna keep that in my pocket. <laughs> yes, please read that to your new your new interns that you get. <laughs> I'll swap the names out. I don't, don't want to be too obvious about it. Tell them you're going to go ahead to the bad guy's fortress and you'll meet them. <laughs> I'll meet you there. <laughs> uh, so soft skills training, it's a little bit harder, right? Um, we talked a little bit ago about how 
if someone's performance is ambiguous, uh, having high self-efficacy can make someone do poor at it because they, they can't tell, you know, how well they're doing and they assume they're doing well just because they're good. Um, so for soft skills, maybe show other examples of people that they identify with trying and failing at a task. So like we talked about training CEOs or C-level executives uh, in a previous episode, maybe show them, you know, examples from the news or magazine articles or very experienced people in their positions have had a hard time with the tasks that you're about to, to show them um, just to plant the seed that this is something that they, you know, need to learn and apply themselves to. So try the try that out, you know, give that induced failure to lower someone's expectations of their ability to a reasonable level in case they're too confident. And then always, of course, give feedback that is as precise and concrete as you can, which is good for a, a variety of ways. So now that we've been through self-efficacy and back, we come back to the question of why Dark Souls was successful in the first place. Maybe the people playing Dark Souls have enough self-efficacy going into the game to just be undeterred by the fact that they're dying, right? Like, maybe they've been so successful at video games before that they built up that confidence and the game doesn't destroy that. Is that based on specific previous games they've played, do you think, or building on the series itself? Um. Yeah, well, yeah, building in the series itself, I think. Like, with me playing playing uh, Dark Souls 3... You know, I had confidence from playing Dark Souls 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even Dark Souls 1, I'd played, you know, lots of video games before. So this is just another video game. I should be able to beat it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's all of the messages in the game telling people that they couldn't do it just to make them... Maybe that just makes them want to try harder, right? You can't to... tell me what to do. You're <laughs> not my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe they just wanted to to prove the game wrong, right? And there's probably some psychology theory here mm-hmm. that we could go into later. Uh, the the counterpoint there, though, is a lot of the the user messages that you see throughout the game. So you see that other people are progressing through the game and have done it. So maybe those messages kind of give you the the vicarious experiences that the the game itself as a single player experience lacks. That it is not literally impossible, right? Yeah, and speaking of which, maybe it's just the fact that the game exists, right? So there must be a way to beat it somehow. <laughs> that would be a mean trick to release a game that was unbeatable. Uh, yeah, we should talk about unbeatable games in a yeah. later episode. Like, uh, talk about Desert Bus by Penn Oh, Tyler. Lord, yeah. <laughs> Let's play it in real time, audio only. <laughs> 17 hours later. Uh... But then maybe it's also because those introductory deaths, like especially in, in Demon Souls and Dark Souls, they're clearly intentional from the game designers. So you know that your deaths have a reason. Like you're dying not because you're a horrible bad person, but because this is just part of the game experience somehow. And maybe framing it that way encourages people to know that it's okay to die. It's okay to fail. Right? You're not as hot as stuff as you think you are, but you know, it's okay to, yeah, you can get there. You can be hot stuff in the future. You know what? I think, I think you may have converted me. I think, yeah, maybe not enough to pay full price, but you know, it's holiday season. Stuff's going to go on sale. Yeah. I recommend, uh, yeah. Looking into dark souls one. Um, 
it's a great great place to start demon souls is kind of uh hard to get into it's, it's still a little bit rough around the edges mm-hmm. and uh dark souls 2 and 3 are just kind of reruns of the the same theme unfortunately uh yeah give it give it a shot i highly recommend it i will keep an eye out <laughs> so and then, I'll, well, and then i'll die a lot <laughs> and then you'll you'll die a lot <laughs> In fact, the DLC for Dark Souls 1 is called the Prepare to Die DLC. Okay, up front. I like <laughs> Pre- it. <laughs> Prepare to Die Edition or something <laughs> like that. So, well, thank you for listening to us talk about self-efficacy on Gamification Unlocked. I'm Brandon Carper. And I'm Chad Hayfley. As always, you can find links to the articles we mentioned on our website, unlockinggames.com. We'd also appreciate it if you could spread the word about our show. Let other people know about this episode if you enjoyed it. Rate us on iTunes or find and share our page on Facebook. We are confident that you can do it. No. See what I did there, Chad? I see it. I see it. Well, until next time, it's your move.